0: From Public Radio International, this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, December 5th. I'm Marco Wormann. More Eurocrisis talks today. The leaders of France and Germany say a new treaty is needed to prevent another crisis in the future. Meanwhile, the global financial crisis means business is up for companies that print paper money.
1: People are uh, reluctant to uh, keep as much money in the banks and they're pulling it out and uh, going back to the old form of uh, sticking it under their mattress.
0: And later in the program, a Tamil song breaks through language barriers in India.
2: There's only one song that people are humming, and it's Kulavariti, the Tamil song...
3: ERIs the World is brought to you with support from Medtronic, leveraging products, people, and philanthropy to help reduce the global burden of chronic non-communicable diseases such as diabetes and heart disease. Medtronic invites listeners to learn more and join the conversation at Medtronic.com. And by IBM, working to help mid-sized businesses become the engines of a smarter planet. Learn more at IBM.com/slash engines. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World.
0: Prime Minister Vladimir Putin's grip on Russia seems a little less firm today. Thousands of protesters marched on the streets of Moscow today, demanding honest elections. This after Russia's parliamentary elections over the weekend were marred by reports of voting irregularities. According to preliminary results, Putin's United Russia Party won the vote, but the party lost its two-thirds majority in the Duma, diminishing its power and Putin's. The BBC's Steve Rosenberg is in Moscow. He says Vladimir Putin is not accustomed to setbacks.
4: In the 10 years he's been in power, he's grown used to being Russia's most popular politician, most powerful politician. And suddenly, on one Sunday, his party has stuttered at the polls. It's had a bad run. It doesn't look good just three months before the presidential elections. Mm. He wants to return uh, to the Kremlin. There's no doubt, I think, that he will win the presidential election. But I think this result shows that his party is losing popularity. And he himself has been losing popularity. Uh, There was an incident a few weeks ago when, uh, at the end of a martial arts fight in Moscow, Mr. Putin turned up, stepped into the ring to make a speech. And as soon as he started speaking, the crowd burst into boos and hisses and catcalls, another sign that his uh, popularity may be waning.
0: I guess then the question is why the setback for Putin and united Russia? I mean, in September, uh, he said he wanted to become president again. uh, As he said, he'll be running next year, uh, effectively swapping roles with Dmitry Medvedev, the president. I mean, did Putin assume that they had more public support for
4: this scheme? I, I really think he did. I really think that this has come as a shock to Mr. Putin to see his party losing support at the polls. But I think there are a number of reasons why this is happening. First of all, Vladimir Putin has been in power for more than a decade. He could be president again for 12 years uh, if he's elected at the next presidential election and the one after that. So a lot of people are disenchanted with having the same man uh, in power. There's another reason too, I think, that United Russia has been labelled the party of villains and frauds by its opponents. Many people in Russia don't believe it's going to solve uh, the big problems that exist here, like The gap between rich and poor.
0: You know, Steve, there are people who are disenchanted all over the world and protesting about it. Is there any evidence uh, of some groundswell of populist anti Putin organization in Russia right now?
4: There are anti Putin groups, there are opposition groups. From time to time, they come out and, and try to hold street protests. What we're talking about here, I think, is disenchantment, frustration with what's happening in the country, but it's not developing yet into a mass protest. That is something, I think, that the authorities will fear, but there's no sign of that at the moment.
0: Maybe mass protests aren't in the offing in in the future, but I'm wondering if, if the election results this weekend are some sign that Russia is in for a period of political instability.
4: I think a lot will depend on what Vladimir Putin does now, how he reacts to this parliamentary result. Will he try to reach out to the people and reconnect himself with the electorate and restore his popularity and address some of the, the the problems that people are talking about, like social injustice? Or will he bury his head in the sand and continue to believe that he is popular and push forward?
0: The BBC, Steve Rosenberg in Moscow on the electoral setback for Russian Prime Minister Vladimir Putin and his United Russia Party. Steve, thanks so much. You're welcome. The leaders of Germany and France met today for their latest talks on how to save the euro. French President Nicolas Sarkozy and German Chancellor Angela Merkel are facing a tight deadline. They and other European Union leaders want to hammer out a new plan at a summit later this week. Today, Merkel and Sarkozy issued a joint call for a tougher EU treaty that would punish countries that exceed budget deficit guidelines. Merkel and Sarkozy are eager to present a united front during this crisis, but they also must bridge a huge divide between their two nations. Charles Grant is the director of the think tank, the Centre for European Reform. He's recently spent time in both Berlin and Paris. So spell out the divide for us, Mr. Grant. What does France want? What does Germany want?
5: Well, they both want to save the euro, but they rather disagree about how to do it. However, since Germany is very much in charge of the EU these days, France is on most of the big questions following the Germans. The Germans think that to save the euro, you need everybody to have strict budgetary discipline so that governments do not borrow too much, and they want a new treaty with strict rules in it that would punish governments who overspend. That's the German plan. The French don't actually think a new treaty is a good idea. It's very hard, for example, to get it ratified in every member state. You probably have a referendum in Ireland and the Irish could vote no. And the French also have doubts about all these strict rules. They prefer political discretion uh, to play a role in deciding how much governments should or should not be allowed to borrow.
0: Claire, for for us, uh, what this idea of punishing countries that don't kind of obey the rules, what does that actually mean? What, What kind of punishment are we talking about?
5: what is going to happen, I think, is that there'll be the countries that have problems, the countries that cannot borrow easily, will have to submit their national budgets, not only to their own parliaments, as you would expect, but also to the EU. And if the EU institutions think that, say, the Italian budget is not a good budget, they will tell the Italians they jolly well have to change it. So countries in difficulty are losing sovereignty over their budgets.
0: What is the historical significance of the French-German relationship as it comes into play uh, with this uh, Eurozone crisis right now?
5: Well, obviously, ever since the EU was created 60 years ago, um, it has been led by France and Germany. It was built really on the desire to ensure there should never again be a war between them. Those countries have always been in the lead. What's changed just in the last two or three years is that Because the German economy is so much stronger than the French economy, Germany really calls the shots. Uh, For example, France has much more debt than Germany and a bigger budget deficit. This gives Germany the upper hand.
0: I mean, we keep hearing that this is it, that this week the fate of the euro will be decided. Do you see this uh, as the make-or-break week?
5: No, I think this is journalistic hyperbole. Um, (laughs) The summit is important this week. I believe that we are moving towards uh, a deal at the summit at the end of this week, that will give us some breathing space and buy a bit of time. But the deal means uh, everybody accepts a new treaty with tight rules on budgets, so we will buy some time before we tackle the long-term difficulties. Mm.
0: Evidently, more to come. Charles Grant, the director of the think tank, the Centre for European Reform, speaking with us from London. Thanks a lot.
5: Thank you very much. In the
0: global economy, billions of euros get traded electronically around the globe in milliseconds. Same for U.S. dollars. But cold, hard cash still has its value. And for companies that actually print that cash, financial uncertainty is impacting them in a good way. Here's the world's Jason Margolis.
6: Doug Crane's family has been making paper for money for a long, long time. His great, 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 great grandfather, Stephen Crane, owned and operated a mill outside of Boston during the Revolutionary War.
7: He made banknote paper at the time uh, for Paul Revere continental currency on, and that's, you know, that, that's sort of uh, a humbling aspect of our roots.
6: Since 1801, Crane & Company's mill has been located in the town of Dalton in western Massachusetts. The company is the sole provider of paper notes for the U.S. government. They take a blend of cotton and linen, add security features like watermarks with Ben Franklin's image, then send stacks of paper to the U.S. Bureau of Engraving and Printing where it becomes money. At the mill, huge rolls of paper unwind above our heads. They're producing hundreds today.
7: You you can touch this right here. It's sort of fun to touch. That's uh, hundreds of dollars going past your fingertips.
6: More like hundreds of thousands uh, of dollars. Each roll of paper will become $800,000. And there are dozens of rolls on the factory floor. Overall, this mill produces about 18 million pounds of banknote paper each year. Crane also provides paper for 18 other currencies at its mill in Sweden. Doug Crane says it's a good time to be in the currency business.
7: The demand uh, sort of ebbs and flows and certainly uh, there's been a a stronger uh, demand on currency and and on certain denominations in particular since the uh, economic uncertainty has really uh, spread across the world. Crane says there's been a significant
6: uptick in demand for $100 bills in particular. That's a note people like to stash away during times of uncertainty, especially people outside of the U.S. It's not just Ben Franklin's being hoarded. The company Fortress Paper prints the euro and the Swiss franc at its mill near Zurich. Chad Wasalenkoff is company CEO.
1: With the global crisis going on, uh, you know, these printing presses are running uh, fast and furious around the world, so it's uh, very robust times there.
6: Vasilenkov says they're expecting to produce 40% more paper for the euro next year. That's partly because old euros need to be replaced, but also because of the financial instability in Europe.
1: People are uh, reluctant to uh, keep as much money in the banks and they're pulling it out and uh, going back to the old form of uh, sticking it under their mattress. I mean, if you had your, your cash sitting in a grease bank, uh, you might uh, be a little reluctant and you'd want to have uh, some extra reserves sitting around just in case.
6: Historical evidence confirms this behavior, says economist Michael Walden at North Carolina State University. Yes, our bank accounts are insured to a point by our governments, both in Europe and North America. Still, Walden says it's understandable that people hold onto a kernel of fear.
5: I think people in these times like to simply have more cash on hand. I think that just fulfills a basic primal need we have when there is heightened financial fear. That's
6: not to say we'll see bank runs like in the Great Depression or even what happened just three years ago in Iceland when people were walking around Reykjavik with bags of foreign currency. Robert Howell at Dartmouth's Tuck School of Business thinks the worst is behind
5: us. I certainly think that uh, financial leadership in Europe and China and uh, certainly the United States are doing everything and will do everything they can to uh, prevent a, uh, you know, run on the banks worldwide, I don't think we're going to get to the point where everybody's trying to put to, you know cash under their uh, mattresses.
6: So your mattress is not getting any thicker? No. <laughs> no, it isn't. There is another potential business opportunity for currency companies. Some Eurozone countries could revert to their old currencies. Again, Chad Wasylenkov.
1: Demand for banknotes would definitely go up. So obviously the most likely uh, to leave the Eurozone first would be uh, Greece. So they would have to get, to whether it was drachmas again or whatever they would decide, uh, produce, and they'd have to create reserves.
6: That said, Wassilenkov doesn't want too much economic uncertainty. After all, even though he makes money by making money, like any business, he still needs a stable economy to operate. Back in Dalton, Doug Crane says pretty much the same thing about a potential euro collapse.
7: Well, uh, it it certainly uh, would create a short-term need for new banknotes. If you were to ask if the currency industry is hoping for something like this, I think the answer is no, not really. He says in the long run,
6: currency makers like him need people to have trust in their product. That is, have trust in cash. For the world... I'm Jason Margolis.
0: Still to come on the program: the ironies faced by victims of hate crimes in
3: South Africa on PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic working across borders, disciplines and industries to deliver medical technology solutions that help improve healthcare around the world. Learn more at medtronic.com/innovation. Medtronic, innovating for life. And by IBM working to help mid-sized businesses become the engines of a smarter planet. Learn more at ibm.com/engines. I'm Marco Werman.
0: This is The World. Discrimination is a daily fact of life for Europe's Roma people, and that's often reflected by all the cultural baggage that the word gypsy carries. In Romania recently, officials decided to acknowledge that the Romanian word for gypsy, "Cigan," is a pejorative term. The preferred word is now Roma. Groups that work for Roma rights are celebrating the change, but many Romanians, including some Roma, are against it. The world's Jerry Haddon reports from Bucharest. When you ask Roma here if they think the term
8: gypsy or tzigan is insulting, the answer is complicated. In an alley behind a busy farmer's market, a Roma man named Aurica says his people call each other tzigan. We don't say to each other, hey Roma, we say, hey tzigan. So for me, it's not a negative word. But if you and I have an argument and you call me a tsigan, we're going to have a problem. Then Aurica's 11-year-old son, Antoni, chimes in. He says he wants to be called Roma. His father gets angry. Why, he asks. Because they tell you in school that the tsigan are bad? Yes, the boy says. That's wrong, Aurica says. You are both tsigan and a Romanian citizen. Such prejudice, anger, and linguistic confusion is nothing new in Romania. Some Roma groups have been asking since the early 20th century for the record to be set straight. This year, they finally got their way. The Romanian Academy, the guardian of the tongue, has officially defined the group as Roma. Behind that big change is tiny Monica Busuiok, an elderly, bespectacled woman who works on the Academy's fourth floor. Busuiok sits with the latest edition of the Romanian Dictionary. She says it not only recognizes Roma as the correct name of the ethnic group, it makes an equally important modification of the old name, Tzigan.
9: For a person with villainous behavior.
10: Villainous behavior? Villainous
9: behavior. And now we add it for a person who has an uncivilized behavior.
8: Busuyok says linguists have no right to remove offensive terms like Tzigan from dictionaries, but they can modify them to reflect social realities.
9: Since 14th century, in Slavic documents and in... 16th centuries in Romanian documents. This term was used in proverbs, in sayings, and one cannot eliminate this from the Romanian language.
8: But the official designation of Roma is offending some Romanians. The reason, in the Romanian language, Roma and Romanian sound a lot alike. Listen. Rom. And now Romanian. Roman. Many Romanians don't want to be confused with the Roma. At a downtown bus stop, a woman who would only give her name as Julia said that Roma are thieves and they give Romanians a bad name, especially overseas. She says her sister, who's blonde like her, is an honest, hardworking nurse in Italy. And every day, she says, her sister's co-workers show her articles in the paper saying, look at what you Romanians are doing. But what they're showing her are crimes that the Tzigan have committed, she says. Roma rights groups say this is the very attitude they want to change. And taking the term tsigan out of popular usage can help. Anna Avasiuk is with a Bucharest NGO called Impreuna. She says using tsigan amounts to linguistic ghettoization, and it's a barrier to integration.
3: I was reading about the community of Tarlungen, which is somewhere in the center of Romania, around which the town hall has built a wall that costed them 60,000 euros. Now, instead of putting these 60,000 euros to good use to improve the access of the Roma to everything that they're entitled to get, they used it to restrict their access Mm -hmm. and to push them somewhere far away from their daily
2: life.
8: That wall was made of cement. In another city, officials built one out of metal. The Roma there tore it down and sold the metal for scrap. These incidents haven't done much to improve the Roma's or Romania's image here or abroad. The question now is... Can changing a word in the dictionary really change things? The Romanian Academy's Monica Busuioc says she's not sure.
9: I cannot combat the discrimination. It's a problem to change the mentality.
8: Still, she says, you have to start somewhere. Beyond language, the Romanian government is near to presenting a plan to improve the Roma's lot through social integration and jobs programs, improved housing and education for the young. The European Union has given all member states until the end of the year to come up with such plans to improve the Roma situation. For The World, I'm Gerry Haddon, Bucharest, Romania.
0: You can see and hear Romanians talk about the use of the word Roma We've got a video at theworld.org. A change in the language of entertainment may be in the works in India. Normally, the most popular songs and movies there are in Hindi, the language that guarantees the biggest nationwide audience. Regional languages such as Tamil are usually confined to regional audiences, but a song in Tamil has now crashed through that barrier to become a nationwide hit. It's called Kolaveridi Di, and it's become an internet sensation too. <laughs> The song's video has been viewed 16 million times on YouTube in just a couple of weeks. The BBC's Rahul Tandon is in Calcutta. I've watched this song three times, Rahul, and it's already an earworm in my brain. How has it become so popular in India?
2: It's just so addictive. They don't speak Hindi here. They don't speak Tamil here. They speak Bengali, but everywhere you go on streets like this, there's only one song that people are humming, and it's Kulavaridi, the Tamil song, that means murderous rage. And and it's a very interesting mix of languages because there's a bit of Tamil in there, but there's a huge amount of English in there, which is sung in the way the South Indians tend to speak English, which is putting a U on the end of every single word of it. I think what we're seeing with this song is a more confident India saying, look, there's many different parts of us. Let's explore the artistic parts of the country now.
0: Is Kolaveri d associated with any film? Because I know a lot of pop songs around India come from Bollywood movies. Does this have a, a film to go with it, or it's just a, a one-off?
2: No, no, it's a film. It's part of a Tamil film called Three, which is going to be released very, very shortly. I think we're going to see a lot of people going to watch that. It's interesting, isn't it? I suppose it goes back to the days in America where you had so many songs which came from the great musicals. Still here in India, most of the songs that you'll see, the Hindi songs topping the charts, They're all coming from films. He can't have a Bollywood film without music and somebody dancing around a tree.
0: (laughs) You know, there's something else going on here, too, Rahul, that I noticed on the YouTube site where you can see this video for Kola Veridi. There are lots of comments from Tamils who don't like India, Indians and Pakistanis who don't like Tamils, and Indians and Pakistanis who are hating each other in their comments, and yet it's got a record 16 million hits. Is this song breaking down barriers or stoking tension in some other way?
2: You know, I think it does help in some ways because Tamils are feeling very proud that for the first time, you know, one of their songs is top of the charts here in India. It's setting all sorts of records. And I think for a younger generation, a lot of the things of the past, those differences, are not as important to them as maybe it was to their parents or their grandparents.
0: Aside from murderous rage, what, what else is going on in the song? What, what's he singing about?
2: <laughs> like all great songs, it's basically, you know, about falling in love, but he's getting dumped and about how he's turning to whiskey and all these other things. Everybody is just stunned at the way that this song has has taken off.
0: And given that it's got over 16 million hits now, uh, are the words starting to enter popular culture in India? I mean, what is this Kola Verdi?
2: Yeah, Kola Veridi. everybody, you know, my son goes to school and he's, I said to him, if you don't do your homework, he said, what are you going to do, get into a Kola Verdi, a bad rage? <laughs> so yeah, I, think kid, I think kids are picking it up and it's also part of this other development. You know, people are saying this song is not a Tamil song. It's a Tamlish song, bit mm. of Tamil, bit of English in there. And you hear a lot of that in India. You hear a lot of Hinglish as well, people speaking a bit in Hindi, a bit in English. It's a real mix of different languages, in India, at the moment. And this song has captured that more than any other ever has done.
0: The BBC's Rahul Tandon in Calcutta. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, fighting hate crimes in South Africa, going to the police doesn't always help.
9: If you go to a police station to go lay a charge as a lesbian person, first question they will ask you, why are you lesbian? They They don't listen to what you came to do. They ask you, why are you lesbian? Why are you sleeping with other girls?
3: PRI's The World is brought to you with support from Medtronic, Leveraging products, people, and philanthropy to help reduce the global burden of chronic non-communicable diseases such as diabetes and heart disease. Medtronic invites listeners to learn more and join the conversation at Medtronic.com. And by IBM, working to help mid-sized businesses become the engines of a smarter planet. Learn more at IBM.com engines.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service. PRI and WGBH Boston. International climate change negotiators are back at it this week in Durban, South Africa. Negotiators are scrambling to make significant progress in a process that seems to have fallen far behind the urgency of the problem. Just this week, there's a new report out confirming that global emissions of carbon dioxide jumped by the largest amount ever last year. Scientists warn that the rapid growth in greenhouse gas emissions is putting the Earth on track to dangerous warming in the next few decades. But a global agreement to cut those emissions still seems a dim hope. The BBC's environment correspondent Richard Black joins us from the UN Climate Change Conference in Durban. Uh, It's not news to the delegates there, uh, Richard, that the Earth's surface continues to warm up and that greenhouse gas pollution is likely the biggest culprit. I'm wondering, though, how much of a jolt this new analysis gives the proceedings there in Durban to actually break the gridlock and reach an agreement on cutting emissions.
10: Well, you're absolutely right. It certainly isn't news, and it's worth remembering that virtually all of the governments uh, here are also fully signed up to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is something that's been sounding the alarm uh, on this since 1997. So basically, we had the car crash in Copenhagen a couple of years ago when all those massive expectations of a big global deal just fell off the table with a, right. with a resounding crash. So part of what this is about is trying to implement some of the much smaller uh, bits that were agreed uh, in principle last year in the, in the summit in Mexico and then look at what's possible in the years ahead. So what
0: are the key sticking points right now? Does it still come down to the same kind of place we've been for the last few years, uh, the inability of the U.S. and China, which are by far the largest greenhouse polluters, to commit to substantial cuts in their emissions?
10: Yeah, it's interesting. You've got lots of these big countries that have subtly different positions. So there's no doubt, for example, that the US is now being joined by Canada. Canada sees itself as it wants to parallel the US as closely as it can. So both of them are unwilling to do anything looking up to 2020. China has got its own system of five year plans. And then we have India, which... Over the last couple of years, it's been rather conciliatory, but this year has a new environment minister who's being very hardline and saying that as a major developing country, they shouldn't really have to do very much. You've got the small island states and some of the least developed countries that are very worried about climate impacts, and they're pushing for a lot of progress as soon as possible, and they're largely backed by the European Union, which also wants to get cracking on talks for a new deal as soon as possible. And as you can see, Marco, there are very different visions of what the future ought to hold.
0: Now, the goal ultimately is an agreement on greenhouse gas emissions, but, but you're saying the conference participants are kind of going to focus on smaller goals. Give us an example or two of those smaller goals and how that might lead the conference ultimately to a big agreement.
10: Okay, so sure. So, so the one in which there's probably most likelihood of actually finalizing something here is what's called technology transfer. In, in the United Nations Climate Convention, it's acknowledged that developed countries should help poorer countries to develop cleanly. So one of the ways of doing this, obviously, is to transfer clean technology from the rich countries where presumably it's been developed into the poorer countries. But there are issues there, for example, over intellectual property. So how do you get an agreement there which satisfies everyone and you can actually start doing something on the ground? So that's the kind of smaller agreement that uh, may well be finalised here. But, uh, you
0: know, I mean, the, the real thing is to kind of get back to the ideas of the Kyoto Protocol, uh, and that protocol expires next year. It's the only truly global tree right now on greenhouse gases. What, what happens then?
10: Well, that's, that's a very good question, and this is what, one of the things that's brought urgency to the talks in the last couple of years. The protocol itself doesn't expire. What expires are the commitments that a number of developed countries have made under it to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. So there's a lot of concern around, in, particularly in developing countries, that if the EU and, and the other countries inside the Kyoto Protocol don't make new pledges inside that protocol, which kick in pretty soon, is the protocol a shell with no meaningful content, even though it continues to exist? That's the concern. So if the Kyoto Protocol does become a shell, as
0: you say, and and there is no agreement coming out of Durban, I mean, it looks like the results in Durban could potentially be pretty dismal. I mean, what is the bare minimum you expect to come out of this round of
10: talks? Anything is possible. And when you analyze what negotiators have been putting into the public domain, obviously they don't give away everything at this stage. They probably don't give away everything until the final night. But um, it could be a complete car crash. Equally, you could emerge with all these technical things from last year being tied up and you could end up with an agreement on how to go forward another try, if you like, in, in reaching a new global treaty. Anything across that spectrum is possible at the moment.
0: We'll be checking back in through the week at the UN Climate Change Conference in Durban. The BBC's Richard Black speaking with us from Durban. Thanks so much. My pleasure. South Africa has laws on the books recognizing rights for gay men and women, yet many gays and lesbians say they face discrimination in the justice system there. They say the courts move slowly on hate crimes cases and hand down lenient sentences. Some say they are mocked by court officials and police officers. Now South Africa's government says it's taking steps to improve the handling of these sensitive cases. But Anders Kelto reports from Cape Town, given the prevalence of anti-gay attitudes, that's easier
11: said than done. Dozens of protesters gather in a large courtyard in front of the Kailiche Magistrate Court. They form a circle and begin marching and singing. They're here to support the memory of Zoliswa Konyana, a 19-year-old lesbian who was brutally murdered in 2006. After a confrontation at a Cape Town bar, Konyana was followed home by a group of young men. They kicked, clubbed, and strangled her, and threw bricks at her head. She died in the street, just a few yards from her house. Her murder trial has dragged on for more than five years. Gay rights groups complain the court hasn't given it priority. In October, four young men were found guilty of the murder. Now, protesters are awaiting the sentencing. Angie Peter is a legal advocate for Anconiana's family. She says the court's handling of the case confirms people's fears.
9: You are a lesbian in this country and then you get killed. It's going to spend like five years, over five years, waiting for the results. that You don't even know what those results will be.
11: In terms of gay rights, South Africa is among the most progressive countries in the world. The Constitution explicitly bans discrimination based on sexual orientation. It's one of just 10 countries in the world, and the only one in Africa, to recognize same-sex marriages. Gay couples are allowed to adopt. But those legal protections don't necessarily translate into tolerance on the ground.
4: One would be dishonest if one were to argue that there is no homophobia in, in South Africa. There is homophobia in South Africa.
11: Tlali Tlali is a spokesman for the South African Justice Department. Last year, gay rights groups filed a complaint over his department's handling of hate crimes against gays and lesbians. Talali says the agency took this complaint very seriously and launched a national task force. It includes officials from six government agencies, as well as leaders of the LGBT community. The task force is pressing the courts to expedite hate crime cases and exploring legislation that would toughen punishments. And it's requiring police officers, prosecutors, and judges to undergo sensitivity training, Chlali says the message
4: to authorities is clear. It really doesn't matter what the sexual orientation of the victim is. You need to treat this particular individual with the necessary levels of professionalism, with the necessary courtesy, regardless of race, color, creed, including their sexual orientation. That is what South Africa is about.
11: But he concedes that they're fighting a difficult battle. He says it's one thing to tell someone how to act. It's another to change the way they think. At a small bar in Kailicha, house music blares from the speakers. A group of young people swigs beer at a table. One woman, who has to be identified by her first name, Amanda, says she came here because it's a gay-friendly bar. And that's not always the case in Cape Town's poor black townships. She says people at other bars often harass her for being a lesbian.
9: They even say that it's un-African. Being a woman, loving another woman, it's not possible. They say that.
11: Another woman, Sarah, says police officers are the worst offenders. A few months ago, one of her friends was the victim of what's sometimes called corrective rape, a violent act aimed at, quote, curing lesbians and turning them straight. It's an alarmingly common crime in South Africa. Sarah says going to the police is a waste of time.
9: If you go to a police station to go lay a charge as a lesbian person, first question they will ask you, why are you lesbian? They don't, they don't listen to what you came to do. They ask you, why are you lesbian? Why are you sleeping with other girls?
11: She says it's great the government is requiring sensitivity training, but she questions how effective those programs will be.
9: Even if they do the workshops and whatever and whatever, if the people that they are hiring doesn't want to change, they won't change.
11: Back at the court, protesters keep marching. Prosecutors are expected to argue for a longer sentence because the murder of Zoliswa and Konyana was motivated by the victim's sexual orientation. If they do, it will be the first time the state's attorneys have made this argument. But it seems protesters will have to wait a little longer for the sentence. It's been postponed until December 19th. Legal advocate Angie Peter says everyone will be watching closely on that day to see what message is delivered. For The World, I'm Anders Kelto, Cape Town, South Africa.
0: The former leader of the West African nation of Ivory Coast appeared before the International Criminal Court today. Laurent Gbagbo is the first former head of state to appear before the court in The Hague. He's facing charges of crimes against humanity, as we hear from the world's Laura Lynch.
12: No longer a president, now a prisoner, Laurent Gbagbo stood before a panel of judges as a suspect, accused of orchestrating bloodshed and violence.
13: Bonjour, madame la présidente.
12: His stone-faced expression before the court was a stark contrast to the animated man who tried to cling to power for weeks after a disputed presidential election last year. The country slipped into a civil war that cost about 3,000 lives. French-backed forces supporting challenger Alassane Ouattara eventually arrested Bagbo. He had been held under house arrest for months until last week, when ICC prosecutors arrested him and flew him to The Hague. Today, Bagbo complained about the process.
6: With regard to the way I was brought to The Hague, I was surprised by how it happened. If I'd been told, Bagbo, you're being arrested and flown to The Hague, I might have agreed. But once again, we were
14: deceived.
12: The former president said he had no notice of the arrest. One of his lawyers, Habiba Toure, says he was flown out of the country before he had a chance to properly consult with his legal team.
2: It was completely illegal. Uh,
13: the Ivorian authorities uh, didn't respect the process because the president Lower Bagbo, didn't have the time to, to defend himself. We didn't have the time to, to, to speak with him, to explain him
9: what happened. He was transferred brutally.
12: One of his advisors, Alain Toussaint, accuses the court of bending to the will of France, which backed Bagbo's ouster from power.
13: La CPI est l'instrument.
12: The international criminal court has become a pathetic tool, Toussaint says, which France uses to advance its dark political designs, orchestrate Africa's political affairs, and put its own friends in power. Complaints over Bagbo's arrest are fueling criticism of the way the court operates. That isn't surprising to Jeffrey Nice. He prosecuted former Serbian leader Slobodan Milosevic. Nice says that by going after Bagbo, while there are still accusations of atrocities against his rival Watara, the court is taking a risk.
5: Critics of the processes and recent practice of the International Criminal Court raise as a possibility that the court really becomes involved in conflict by selecting one side over the other.
12: But the chief prosecutor of the ICC, Luis Moreno Ocampo, suggests Watara and his supporters are under investigation.
11: I said very clearly, this is the first case, not the last case. We'll do a sequence of cases, not all together, where we follow different evidence and we'll be in more cases during the next year, the coming year.
12: Nice says there's another challenge for the ICC as it takes on the case against Bagbo, a sense that there are too many Africans on trial.
5: There has been talk within Africa of countries withdrawing from the ICC because of its apparent focus on Africa to the exclusion of other countries. This is a matter that would be of great concern to those who want the ICC to succeed.
12: It's a reminder that the court, still trying to establish its legitimacy hasn't been embraced by the United States, Russia, or China. And it's why the case against Bagbo will be watched so closely. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch.
0: Our GeoQuiz takes us north of the Arctic Circle. We're searching for a village in Lapland, the heart of Sami culture, that puts us in the northernmost reaches of Finland. This is a place where you have to look both ways before crossing the street. In addition to cars, you have to watch out for sleds pulled by huskies or reindeer. There's also a small airport there. Tourists like to go there to do things like cross-country skiing in the wilderness. But they also go there for the spectacle up in the sky, the aurora borealis, or northern lights. We'll speak with an Aurora hunter to see what kind of show this village in Lapland is putting on tonight. That's coming up in just a bit. This is P-R-I. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World.
15: Andy
0: Keene. Hi, is this Andy Keene, the Aurora Hunter?
15: Yeah, you're speaking to Andy. Hi.
0: Tell us where you are right now, Andy.
15: I'm just north of Ivalo which is in northern Lapland in Finland.
0: Okay, Ivalo in Finland. Are you uh, finding any auroras where you are?
15: At the moment, we have some cloud cover, so I'm just preparing to drive just a little bit further north, probably about 30 or 40 kilometers to try and find some holes in the clouds. You know, obviously, we're looking for nice clear skies, and uh, on nights where we have solar activities, such as tonight, there's a very high probability that we'll see some nice northern lights.
0: So the the village of Ivalo in Finland uh, is the answer to our geo-quiz today. How are you getting around up there? I mean, we are talking the Sami culture. You're, you're not on a sledge or something, are you?
15: No, uh, because we have to react quickly at times. It's a little bit like uh, the storm chasing you have over there in America with, uh, with like Reed Timmer, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to be able to move at a moment's notice. It's not just a case of sitting around a lake and waiting for something to happen. So we use um, Volkswagen transporters, etc., to get us around. But we also um, go by huskies as well, by sledges, which is quite an experience in itself, you know, cutting through the Arctic wilderness in search of light.
0: What causes an aurora borealis to occur?
15: Well, basically, it's an interplay between uh, what's called a solar wind and the Earth's magnetic field. It's a constant stream of electric particles from the sun. This so-called solar wind rushes along the Earth's magnetic field. It compresses on the day side and it draws it out into a tail of the night side and generates electric currents and fields in the area around the Earth. They receive extra energy there, stream towards the polar regions at great speed, and give us the nighttime aurora.
0: Yeah, we we, we do understand that they are magnificent, and your pictures that you've taken, which we have at theworld.org, will show that. You're up in the northern parts of Finland. What is the best aurora you've seen so far on this trip?
15: Yeah, the, the best aurora actually was last week. We were on what's called a KP Index 4. The scale is 0 to 10, so almost midway point. Wow. But in the actual display itself, we had everything. We had spiraling, curtains, ribbons, lots of colors, greens and reds, and the whole sky lit up. And uh, yeah, my clients were just uh, amazed by what was unfolding before them. Wow. A real, real good night.
0: I was going to ask you, who's more fun to go out aurora hunting with? The experienced Laplanders who've seen this phenomenon since they were kids, or you know, the tourists you bring up who've traveled for the chance to see it for the first time?
15: Well, to be honest with you, even like the local people, because I think that it's like anything, if, it, if it's there all the time, you kind of take it for granted. And a lot of them, when they see my pictures, they've, they've said, my goodness, we didn't realize it was so strong. So, mm. But for me, anybody I take out, you know, the biggest part of the fun for me is watching their faces light up. And uh, when they see it for the very first time, I think I've got one of the best jobs in the world, actually, and love it.
0: Aurora hunter Andy Keane scanning the skies tonight in Ivalo in northern Finland. Very good to speak with you, Andy. Thanks a lot.
15: Yeah, it's great, mate.
0: Again, you can find out more about the Aurora Hunters and see some of Andy's amazing photos of spiraling curtains and ribbons in the night sky at theworld.org. Finally today, a record label that scours the world's music bins to discover, polish, and bring to light forgotten music. The Dust 2 digital label's latest offering is Pende, a four-CD collection of African music culled from old 78 RPM records. Reporter Bruce Wallace has given it a listen. ¶¶
13: This song, Dia Veloma y Said Omar, finds us deep into Opikapinde, Pende, 92 songs deep to be precise. And it finds us in the early 1930s on the island of Madagascar off of Africa's southeastern coast. The two women sing a nostalgic song in Malagasy about a legendary ruler from a nearby island. Opika Pinde sprung from the mind and 78 RPM record collection of Jonathan Ward. Ward first discovered 78 while wandering the Chelsea
14: flea market in New York City. They were a real wake-up call for him. Now here's a whole world of music, probably, you know, the majority of the 20th century's music on these brittle discs, and I know nothing about them.
13: So he set about learning. He says that one thing that got him really obsessed was actually hearing music from Madagascar. And he quickly realized that he needed to share this stuff. He started a blog called Excavated Shellac, where, every week or so, he posts one song from a 78. Recent tracks on there hail from Afghanistan, Portugal, Zanzibar, and Malawi. In the About section of the blog, Ward talks about the great sense of wonder he feels when he first listens to a great 78. Part of that feeling, he writes, is thinking how you'd want to share that with others, to have them feel exactly the same way. There's a lot of that feeling on Opika Pinde. The collection moves across the African continent from north to south, but it hops around a lot, too. Down to Mali, back up to Egypt and Algeria, back down to West Africa, ending up in Nigeria for this, a juju song by the Jolly Orchestra. The lyrics of this one are actually kind of hilarious. They translate,
9: I walk a thousand miles because of the light skinned lady. Lend me your robe so that I can go bye bye, auntie. I
13: think what he's saying here is pretty universal. Let's get married. I'm really sick of living with my parents.
14: The geographic hopping about is intentional. Cultural and language and musical boundaries are often completely different than political boundaries. I think people need a geographic sense of where they are, so I did follow a circuitous route, but I didn't want to feel limited to that either. I wanted to feel kind of free in my own idiosyncratic way to move around. Listening through Pende, you get a particular
13: kind of Pan-African musical vision. It's a surprising and expansive one, but in no way comprehensive. Instead, what Ward wants is the same thing he wants from his blog, to introduce people to music that he loves and to get them talking about it.
14: Really, the point of the project as a whole is to broaden the dialogue in a way. It's not my intention to produce anything that's definitive. In fact, it was solely my intention to have this be a puzzle piece that could maybe be expanded upon in the future.
13: The collection also, of course, extends the lifespan of a few musical jewels, in fact, its title, Opika Pende, means be strong, stand firm, or, word suggests, resist. For the world, I'm Bruce Wallace.
0: That's all for us today. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for being with us.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Plowshares Fund, investing in peace and security worldwide, online at plowshares.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, the Freeman Foundation and the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at MacFound.org.
10: PRI Public Radio
3: International